Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the cup, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, 
you will deny three times that you will know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfilment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, David. Let me say hello again. Uh, we are in Holy Week. Today is the first day of Holy Week, Palm Sunday. And church, we're going to do something tonight which we, we're not good at doing. We're going to slow down, meditate, ponder. Rather than rushing around with lots of noise, we're going to just focus in on the last few days of Jesus' life and encounter Jesus and experience Jesus. It was Tozer who said, it's not enough to simply know about Jesus. You need to have an increasing intimacy with Jesus. An intimacy with Jesus that takes you beyond reason into worship and wonder and praise and delight. And so my desire as we start Holy Week is that we just slow it down and ponder again who Jesus is, not so you can know about him, but so you might experience him and have an intimacy with him that you might leave here in a place of wonder and worship. So why don't I pray that the Spirit does that tonight. I pray, Lord God, that you give us eyes to see, you give us ears to hear, you give us hearts that are open to encountering you, to experiencing you in ways we never have done before. Show us afresh, Lord Jesus, what it cost you. Show us afresh, Lord Jesus, the, the true meaning of the Last Supper and that first Good Friday. We're here tonight, Lord, wanting to experience you. So please do that mighty work. In Jesus' name, amen. I never really knew my grandparents. I always dreamt of sitting on grandpa's knee 
and saying that famous phrase, Grandpa, tell us that story. You ever done that? Grandpa, tell us that story. Tell us that story again and again and again. And friends, if you're going to understand the Last Supper that we've just had read to us, you've got to understand the, the story of the Passover. The Last Supper makes no sense if you don't understand Passover. So come with me. Let's go back 4,000 years. And just imagine that you're a little Israelite sitting on your grandpa's knee. And you say, Grandpa, tell us the story of the Passover. Tell us that story again. And your grandpa says this. Well, son, I was there. I was a little seven-year-old boy. I was the firstborn. I was the eldest child. And it was just the most bizarre experience. And for weeks, we'd had all these bizarre plagues. We'd had the frogs and the gnats and the, the boils and the, the darkness, and it was just crazy. And then Dad came home one night, and he whispered to my mum, blood, lamb, death. And mum went white as a sheet, and she, she looked at me, her firstborn, and she hugged me and said, I love you, I love you, I love you. And she acted really weird for days, saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. Anyway, we um, went down to the market to buy the animal, me and my dad, and we were not a rich family, we were quite a poor family. And it was strange, because that particular day, he chose the, the most expensive animal, a beautiful animal, one years old, a lamb without defect, a perfect lamb without blemish. And we took this lamb home with us, and for four days, we played with it. And on the fourth day, Dad took it, tied its legs, and slit its throat, and slaughtered the lamb, and the blood poured out. And that wasn't unusual. We'd sacrificed many animals. But what he did next was, was really, really bizarre. He, he got a bunch of hyssop, which is the plant used to purify lepers, and he, he dipped the hyssop into the bowl of blood. And he got this blood, and he... He put it all over the doorpost, over the left-hand side, and over the top, and over the right-hand side. And I'm thinking, Mum is going to go crazy. But Mum didn't. Mum just said, Lord, protect us. Lord, please protect us. I'm thinking, what is she on about? Anyway, we um, looked down the street, and, and every house on the street had, had blood on the doorpost. Everyone. Oh, except the house of the Egyptian families, they didn't believe. Anyway, we, we were playing outside that night, and, and suddenly mum spotted me outside the house, and she shouted, Benny, get inside now. Tonight, you must not leave this house. We must shelter under the blood of the lamb. I'm thinking, she's gone crazy. And then she hugged me and kissed me and said, I love you, I love you, I love you. And that night we had this weird dinner and they had bitter herbs and they had salty water. They had this, this lamb that was just roasted until there was not a single bit of blood left in it like the English people like it, done to the burnt. And anyway, so Dad's there in his tunic tucked in about to run. I think, what are you doing, Dad? And they tucked me up in bed and Mum just looked at me and she hugged me and said, I love you, I love you, I love you. 
Lord, protect us. Lord, protect us. It was at midnight. At midnight, this blood-curdling scream and wailing like you've never heard before. And I woke up. What is happening? And mum came over. And she put her ears to my chest. And then she sobbed and she sobbed. And she said, he's alive. Praise the Lord. He's passed over us. He's alive. I'm thinking, what is she on about? And, and there was such wailing in the city that, like, like you've never heard before. And then I realized. I realized that the wailing was not just with joy, but it was with grief. Because in the house of every Egyptian where there was not blood around the doorpost, the eldest son had died. And I'm thinking, that should have been me. That should have been me. And then I realized there had been a death in every house that night. Either the death of a lamb or the death of the firstborn. And mum is right. The Lord had passed us over. The Lord had rescued us. The Lord has delivered us. The Lord has redeemed us. And that's why we celebrate the Passover. Every single year we celebrate the Passover because God saved us. God delivered us. God redeemed us. God's wrath was passed over us. It was the greatest night in our history. Now that is the story of the Passover church. That's what happened that first night. And if you don't understand that, you won't understand the Last Supper. Because Jesus comes and he, he rewrites the Passover. He reinterprets the Passover. He gives the, the greatest after-dinner speech you've ever heard. He says, this is not about deliverance from Egypt. This is about delivering you from your sin. This is not about redeeming you from slavery, it's about redeeming you from sin. This is not about the blood on a doorpost of a lamb. This is about the blood of a human being on a cross. That's what we're on about tonight. Because that last Passover becomes the first communion. But here's the issue that I think at this church, in fact in this city, we, we don't really understand communion. We just rush through it flippantly. Oh, a bit of bread, a bit of juice, whoopee-doo. And I think it's because we haven't really understood what we've been redeemed from and how we've been redeemed. If you were in slavery, you would be rejoicing at your freedom. If you're in captivity, you've been rejoicing at your freedom. We should be delighting and rejoicing, and, but remembering what it cost Jesus. So tonight, we're going to slow down and just walk through this Last Supper. I've got three glorious truths about Jesus. Here's the first one, that Jesus is your Redeemer. Jesus is your Redeemer. He is the one who rescues. He's the one who saves. He is the one who delivers, and it's totally undeserved. So grab your Bibles, Luke 22. It's a cracking story. I'm just going to read through it. Verse 7, that then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So just so you know, this is Thursday night. 
This is the night before Good Friday. This is the night before Jesus died. And all the Jewish people would be in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So about 100,000 people gathered for Passover. Verse 8, Jesus sent his disciples to make the preparations to lay the table, the four cups, the bitter herbs, the salty water, the, the lamb that's going to be slain. But they ask in verse 9, where do you want us to prepare it? And he replied, verse 10, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And we read that and we think, gosh, there must have been hundreds of men walking around with jars of water that night. No, there wouldn't have been. That would be unusual because in this culture, men didn't carry jars of water. Men carried animal skins and the women carried the jars of water. So it would be highly unusual to see a man carrying a jar of water. But, but Jesus knew because Jesus knows everything. And so they make the preparations and then Jesus says in verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. So, so don't think dining room table with chairs. Don't think Michelangelo's last supper where they're all facing outwards. Think low table, Middle Eastern restaurant, cushions on the floor, leaning on the elbow, feet pointing outwards so they could wash your feet. And Jesus said, verse 15, notice the emotion in this verse. I have eagerly desired, I've longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What he's saying is, I've lived for this moment. This is why I came. I stepped into the world. I took on flesh for this particular moment. The hour has come, he says, verse 14. I tell you, I will not eat it again till it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Uh, we won't enjoy a meal together until all of God's people have been gathered around that banquet feast on that last day. Verse 17, after taking the cup, there's two cups, one before the bread and one after the bread. He took the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this, divide it among you. I tell you, I won't drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is the last Passover. There is no more Passover meals because he's going to replace it with the Lord's Supper. Verse 19 is the key moment. Jesus took bread. Don't think loaf of bread, think unleavened bread. It's like flat bread. It's bread without yeast. It's a, a symbol that they're going to leave Egypt hastily. He said, take this bread. And what does he say? It's really bizarre. He, he took bread. He, he lifted his hands and gave thanks as he always did, thanking his father. And then he broke it. He broke the bread and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. And they're thinking, this is bread, it's not a body. What is he on about? Look at verse 19. This is my body given for you, on behalf of you, instead of you. And he's saying that, that my body is going to be given instead of your body. My body is going to be broken and battered and bruised and blooded instead of your body. My body is going to be twisted and pierced instead of your body. You deserve that, but I'm going to do it instead of you. And this bread is now going to be a symbol of my body that was battered and bruised 
for you. And let's think about this. This is not an animal that's being tied up. This is a person. The only perfect, sinless person to ever exist. And he's about to be tied up. And I hope you've grasped how barbaric it was. They tied his wrists. They tied him to a post. And then they would whip him with a cat of nine tails. And they would whip him and whip him and whip him until the back was just shredded and you could see all the veins and the blood would pour down his back. That's how blooded he was for you. They got the crown of thorns and put it on his head and they pushed it so hard that blood trickled down his face. He did that for you. Now if you're here tonight and you're wondering if Jesus loves you, what more did he have to do to show you he loved you? How many more lashes does he have to take to show you he loves you? His body was given for you. Verse 20, in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. There were four cups at the Passover meal. But Jesus takes a cup, a bit like this cup here. And it's really clear that Jesus did not want to take the cup. Did you sense the anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, that gut-wrenching emotion? Verse 41, Jesus knelt down and prayed, Father, Daddy, if you are willing, please, please take this cup from me. He doesn't want to drink the cup. Now, the Father didn't take the cup from him, but the Father did strengthen him. Verse 43, I love verse 43. The angel from heaven appeared and strengthened Jesus so he could obey. But he's still in anguish. Verse 44, being in anguish, in in pain, in agony, in turmoil, Jesus prayed more earnestly. He's pleading with with his Father and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Do you ever think about that? The anguish, the turmoil, the pain that Jesus went through. Because he knows his Father's will. He knows his Father's will is that he drinks this cup. And he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, please, Lord. If there's any other way, I can redeem your people. If there's any other way, I could save from their sins. If there's any other way, I could save them from hell. Please, anything but this cup. And you're thinking, what is wrong with this cup? It is not a cup of blessing. It's a cup of bitterness. It's a cup of wrath. It's the cup that is talked about in Jeremiah 25. The wine of my wrath, says God. That is what God is asking Jesus to drink. He's asking Jesus to drink his wrath, his anger. Jesus, the Son of God, who for all eternity has been in a loving relationship with his Father, is now being asked to drink the full wrath of his heavenly Father, not for his sin, but for your sin and for my sin. That's what he's been asked to do. And Jesus says, yet not my will, but yours be done. Isn't that extraordinary? So different from that first Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam said, not God's will, but my will. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, not my will, but your will. Fully obedient. It's costly, it's painful. Just so you understand, it's a bit like a magnifying glass. With a magnifying glass, you use it for two things. You you make things bigger, 
you enlarge things, which is, which is profoundly helpful as your eyesight declines to get a magnifying glass to see things bigger, or you make things smaller. In that, you can penetrate the, the, the rays of the sun into a single point if you get the magnifying glass at exactly the right angle, and all those rays of the sun are pinpointed with such intensity that you can actually burn things. And that's the idea here with, with the cup of God's wrath that all the sins of the world, all of God's anger of every sin that's ever taken place, murder, perjury, rape, violence, pride, selfishness, greed, anger, lies, lusts, every human sin, God's anger at that has been poured down and down and down. It's pinpointed to one point in history onto one person, Jesus Christ. And that's what he's being asked to do. To suffer the wrath of his father on your behalf instead of you. No wonder he says, if there's any other way. This cup, he says, verse 20, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. A new covenant, a binding agreement is the the new covenant that's talked about in Jeremiah 31 is a, a covenant that God says that I'm going to make an intimate relationship with my people. They will know me intimately because they'll be fully forgiven for every wickedness. That's the new covenant. That because his blood is shed that you can know God intimately because your sins are fully forgiven. And if you're sitting here tonight and you are... You're concerned that, that you've done something past or present that, that you think is not forgiven. That is offensive to God. He's paid for it all. You don't have to sit here in fear that you're going to face the wrath of your Father because Jesus has taken it for you. You are free. You're liberated, not, not from Egypt, but from your sin and from your slavery to sin and from your fear of sin. He's paid it all. That's why this Last Supper is so extraordinary. Christ took your cup of grief, your cup of curse, he pressed it to his lips and he drank it to the dregs, then filled it with his sweet, pardoning, sympathizing love and gave it back for you to drink and to drink forevermore. That is the Last Supper that becomes the Lord's Supper. But as I say, I just don't think we understand the Lord's Supper here at the Bridge Church. We don't really get rituals. We just rush through it once a month on the first Sunday. But the Lord's Supper was instituted. We were instructed to do it. Uh, you're not saved by taking communion. I hope you know that. You're not saved right with God by taking the communion. I mean, a thief on the cross never took communion, but he was still saved. But we are instructed to do it again and again and again. It's an act of obedience. It's an act of remembrance just like the first Passover where they had these different elements, the, the bitter herbs was to remind them of their bitterness in Egypt and the, the salty water was to remind them of the tears that they shared and the lamb was to remind them of the sacrifice of the blood on the doorpost. Well, this piece of bread is, is a reminder to you of Jesus' broken, battered, blooded body. And the juice or the wine is a reminder of his blood that covers all your sin. It's an act of remembrance. 
But it's more than that. And this is why I get frustrated in this city that we just think it's an act of remembrance. It's more than that. Now, I'm not suggesting like the Roman Catholics suggest wrongly that, that the, the bread and the, the wine become the, the actual physical body of Jesus and his blood of Jesus. That's called transubstantiation. That is wrong. But equally wrong is this, this view that, that the bread and the, the juice is just merely symbols. And all we're doing is just remembering. It, it, it's more than that. Now, Jesus invites us to partake of his body and blood. The prayer book says to feed on him in our hearts, to feed on Jesus in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. What does that mean? When you feed on something, it nourishes you. When you feed on something, it satisfies you. And what Jesus is saying here, as Calvin says, is that somehow the bread and the wine have the spiritual presence of Jesus. And so as we stop and slow down and as we partake of this bread, we're feeding on Christ. And we're supposed to say, wow, Jesus, you are the one who satisfies me. You are the one who fulfills me. You are the one who provides and protects. Wow, Jesus, thank you. As you partake of the blood of the juice, we're supposed to say, wow, Jesus, you're the one who's fully cleansed me and fully forgiven me. If you would just stop and slow down enough to allow Jesus to nourish you and to feed you, that's what we're doing at communion, partaking of Jesus. And we're proclaiming the gospel. Just as the first Passover meal, they're proclaiming that they've been redeemed, they've been rescued. As we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming to each other and to the world how glorious Jesus is. Praise God for the prayer book, eh? Praise God for the liturgy in the prayer book. You know, you can have a terrible sermon with terrible songs, but if you've got the liturgy of communion, you will understand the gospel. And more than that, we are anticipating, we're looking forward to, to feasting with him for all eternity, of reigning with him and ruling with him. That's what we're doing at communion. And we are going to take communion tonight, slowly, reflectively, uh, please don't take it tonight if you're here and you're not really believing that Jesus is your Redeemer. But if you do believe that, then just remember what it cost him. Just think about his battered, broken body and the blood that was shed. That's the first thing. Jesus, our Redeemer, um, more briefly, uh, Jesus is our servant. Now, that, that sounds really really offensive that Jesus is our servant. But that's what Jesus says. Verse 24 is a, a totally bizarre verse. A, a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Isn't that ridiculous? Uh, these men who lived with Jesus, who walked with Jesus and saw Jesus' humility and saw the way he served other people, and here they are, they're fighting, they're boasting about who could be the greatest. Now, it's not in Luke's gospel, but this is the point where Jesus stoops low, puts on a towel, and washes their feet, just to show them that this act of humility, that he is a servant. But they can't comprehend that. And I just wonder whether verse 25 is actually a verse for us at the Bridge Church. Because some of us here think we are more important than we really are. 
Jesus said to his disciples, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. They rule over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. He's saying, please don't be like the world. The world sees power and exercises power by exalting self and talking yourself up and lording over people because, hey, I'm so important. I'm a benefactor. I benefit from you serving me. That's the way the world thinks. That's why you get CEOs who employ lackeys to make their coffee and to carry their bags and put out their chairs because they're too important to do that. That's why you get those, um, if you ever seen those, those women in China with the very, 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 very long fingernails. That's a sign of status and importance because they can't possibly do anything. They need other people to serve them. And Jesus says, please don't be like the world. And sadly, some Christians are like that. Some Christians think that they're more important than they really are. You can't expect me to put out chairs. You can't expect me to wash up. You can't expect me to talk to normal people. I'm more important than that. And if you're thinking like that, you're thinking like the world thinks. What did Jesus say? Verse 26, you are not to be like the world. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the, the lowliest, the one who gets the least, the one that people look down on. Verse 26, and the one who rules like the one who serves. Because friends, that is true greatness. True greatness is not about being served. True greatness is about serving other people. True greatness is about pouring yourself out for other people. Do you believe that? Do you believe in God's eyes, the lowly place is the best place to be? In God's eyes, to humble yourself and to, keep, to think of yourself as low and to serve other people is the best place to be. And I was thinking this week that... Um, I think if our prime minister took a month off, nobody would really notice. But I tell you, if our garbage collector took a month off, we would all notice. And what Jesus says to you is, stop thinking you're like the prime minister. Stop thinking that you're so important in the world. And start to act like a garbage collector, serving other people, pouring yourself out for other people, that is the best way to live because that's the way that Jesus lived. Verse 27, I'm among you as one who serves. Isn't that extraordinary? The king of kings is the servant of servants. I'll say it again. The king of kings is the servant of servants. He, he stooped low. He took on flesh. He went to the cross. He just spent his whole life serving other people. And if you claim to follow him, that's the way that you should live. But it's so hard, isn't it? Because our whole society is shaped around pride and climbing the ladder and being important and having other people serve you. And I reckon that particularly in this area of Sydney, it is so hard to grasp that true greatness is humbly serving other people. Billy Graham said this, the measure of a person's greatness is not the number of servants they have, but the number of people that they serve. When we come to Christ, we are no longer the most important person in the world to us. Christ is. Instead of living only for yourself, we have a higher goal, that is to live for Jesus. The mark of a true follower? Your servants. And we're never more like Jesus than we are, than we are serving him and serving other people. 
We're never more like Jesus than when we are serving Jesus and serving other people. So please, church, get rid of your pride. Get rid of your self-importance. Humble yourself. Serve other people like Jesus did. Lastly, and more briefly, Jesus is our interceder. Jesus prays for you, and this blew my mind this week. Verses 31 to 34 are extraordinary verses. Let's look at them very briefly. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Simon, Simon, he says. He uses Peter's old name because Peter's about to slip into his old behavior. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. He's saying, Simon, wake up. There's a spiritual battle going on. Satan is roaming around and Satan wants to destroy you and Satan wants to crush you, Peter. But you know what? Satan can't do that. He doesn't have the power to do that because I have the power. Simon, verse 32, I have prayed for you. Let that sink in. The Lord Jesus, the King of kings, the, the Lord of lords, the, the ruler of rulers, he is, he is praying for his disciples. He knew that Judas would deny him. He knew that Peter would disown him, but he cares enough to intercede and to pray. I don't know how you feel when someone says, I will pray for you. Whenever, whenever someone comes to me and says, Paul, I'd love to pray with you or pray for you, I've just, I'm blown away. I just get so thankful. But do you ever realize that Jesus is praying for you? He is the best prayer ever, isn't he? That's what the Bible says, Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus continually intercedes for you. Jesus is up there right now praying for you, interceding for you, for your protection, for your deliverance, for your provision, for your keeping. He knows everything about you and he still prays for you. He knew that Peter would fail. He knew that Peter would falter. Actually, Peter doesn't fail spiritually. He doesn't fall away. Peter just stuffs up like we all do. I reckon Peter is just like all of us. You know, when, he, when he's in the presence of Jesus, he's, he's all talk. And we're good at that, aren't we? In church, singing the songs and looking the part and saying, yeah, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. And we walk out of church and the first hint of temptation and we succumb. And we stuff up and we fail. But that's okay because Jesus restores and Jesus keeps and Jesus prays for us. I find that a massive comfort. Do you ever stop and think how many times you would have stumbled, you would have wandered, you could have stuffed up way worse than you did, but, but Jesus was praying for you right then. I can't imagine all the ways that Jesus has directed my path and guided my path by his prayers. He, he stopped that conversation he stopped that person. He changed my decision. He caused that text message to come at just that time. That was Jesus praying for me. I'm not immune from stuffing up like you are as well. But to know that Jesus prays, that's a huge comfort. You might, you might not be a great prayer, but Jesus is. And he's up there right now praying for your protection, for your deliverance, for your provision. And he is the one who can provide. It doesn't mean that you don't pray. I mean, Jesus tells his disciples twice in Gethsemane to pray. Pray that they would resist temptation. Pray against the evil one. But you might be a lousy prayer, but that's okay because Jesus prays. 
Friends, there'll be moments in your life where you don't know what to do, you feel a failure, and Jesus says, let me pray for you. And you know what? When you feel a failure, when, when people walk to this church and say, Paul, I just feel such a failure, I say, well, welcome. You're very welcome here because we're all failures, you know. That's what Jesus welcomes. He welcomes failures who recognize their need for him. So please, please, please know that you are loved by Jesus. You were bought at the greatest cost, that is his blood. He is your redeemer. Please know he serves you and calls you to be his servant. And please know he's praying for you. And he asks you just to pray too. So what we do now is we're going to actually just slow things right down. We are going to take communion. But I'm going to do what we rarely do at this church, which is just to allow you to sit in silence. To sit in silence and to ponder, to meditate on who Jesus is, your Redeemer, your Servant, your Intercessor.